0: Welcome to Unlimited Partners, a podcast on partnership. I'm your host, Thomas McGannon. I'm an investor on a journey to understand what makes great partnerships. This podcast is my way of recording that process and sharing it. Thank you so much for listening to my first episode. First, some background on me. I've always been an investor in my career. It's a really cool job. I get to meet some of the smartest investment managers, the hardest working entrepreneurs. I tell my wife that it's sort of like getting to go to capitalism Disneyland. For those of you that know me, you know that I'm one of the most optimistic, joyful, let's fucking go people. And a lot of times I'm reminded that while I can point to the categoric truth that the world is getting better, a lot of people, they aren't actually happier. And when I look at my job, what is my role? I allocate financial resources. How do I do that? I go out and I try and find some of the smartest, hardest working, most likely to make an impact people. And I ask, how can I help? How can I give money to you so that you can go and build something in the real world and then eventually pay me a financial return? That's a really fun job. Every time that you're meeting with somebody, you have the potential to make their dreams a reality. I'm sitting at the allocator table at the party. I want my table to be full of like really rich conversation, really excited people, people that recognize that in order for us to have the world that we're all really excited about in the future, it's gonna take everyone. It's gonna require the entrepreneur. It's gonna require the venture capitalist. And it sure as hell is gonna require the full participation and buy-in from the LP community. And so why the name unlimited partners? Well, in my experience, signing up for a partnership usually means a very light commitment to not actively try to screw the other person over. And that's just not consistent with what I see as making great partnership. When I have a partnership, I want somebody that goes all in and says, your wins, your losses are mine, let's go to war together. I want this podcast project to be about investing, but more importantly, I want this podcast project to be about life. I want it to be about discovering and celebrating partnership. I want to bring to you some of the hardest working, most interesting, insightful, kind people that I meet in my journey. I want to use this podcast as a surface area to do my life's work. And the idea that I get to share it with you is so friggin' cool. I want to bring you interviews with established investment managers, young and upcoming investment managers. I want to bring you interviews with family offices, institutions, endowments, pension funds. And I want to bring you interviews with people that are outside of the investment I want community leaders. I want philanthropists. I want people who are building the world that we all want to live in. I want to talk about setting goals that are worth achieving and bring you conversations about that process of self-actualization. This conversation is with David Rosenthal, the co-host of my favorite podcast, Acquired. I started listening to Acquired four or five years ago when I was early in my software and internet investing journey. What I loved about David and Ben was their optimism, curiosity, and damn good storytelling. Their podcast talks about some of the best stories in business, from Standard Oil to Berkshire Hathaway to FTX. For many years, I was just a fan of theirs. Acquired, it's not only my favorite podcast, it's also one of my favorite businesses, Why is that? Well, first of all, it didn't require any money for David and Ben to start this. It's a passion project. They did it because they wanted to, not because they had to or because they thought that it would make money. Secondly, it's an online community. They have over 250,000 weekly listeners, 12,000 members in a Slack community. And as I talk, I've actually used that Slack community as a research and capital formation tool. So I'd like to thank David and Ben for starting Acquired. I'd like to thank them for the inspiration and education that they've given me and thousands of others. I'm really excited to bring you this conversation. Please reach out, give us feedback, let us know how we're doing, what you'd like to see more of, what you'd like to see less of. Come find us on Twitter or visit our website at up-pod.com. And now I can't wait to bring you my conversation with David Rosenthal. Hey everybody, before we get into today's conversation, I need to give a shout out to some of our sponsoring partners. Unlimited Partners is brought to you by Tegas. It's fair to say that I built my technology investing career on the Tegas platform. Since joining as a beta customer back in 2017, I've personally conducted hundreds of primary expert interviews. And I've read or listened to more than 10 times that many using their searchable on-demand transcript database. I simply couldn't imagine making an investment or critical business decision without consulting the knowledge that's captured in their platform. So whether you're a professional investor, corporate development executive, or just someone who's looking for expert insights, give Tegas a try by visiting tegas.com. If you'd like to receive more Unlimited Partners content, then please sign up for our private podcast feed. You can do that by visiting our website or by hitting us up with a Twitter DM. We plan to use this feed for releasing longer form, uncut episodes, live recordings, and experiments with the types of interviews and content that we produce. This is the legal disclaimer part Unlimited Partners is not investing advice. The host and members of Unlimited Partners may have a position in the securities discussed. Please do your own research. And now, David Rosenthal. David, tell me about Fatherhood.
1: <laughs> what a great great place to start the first question of your first interview. Before I tell you about that, I'm gonna say, I'm so happy you're doing this, man. Like, this is awesome. Congrats.
0: Well, I appreciate it. It's very accurate to say this. This would not be happening without, without your encouragement. I don't think I'll ever forget the burgers and shakes at In-N-Out and talking about this idea. It's really fun. You know, I, I learn a lot about people that have built businesses and, and done interesting things with their lives and And I seek it out, but there's always some story of of standing on the shoulders of giants. The specifics of of you encouraging me to do this and me having been just so inspired by Acquired and, and educated and just it is my tribe. The fact that I might get to build something on your platform, it's just the most exciting thing It's humbling, too, because as I'm trying to pull this together, I'm realizing, man, this is really hard. It's not natural for me to want to put something like this out into the world. But as we were talking, I kept having these amazing interactions with people that are building and enabling in the world. And I started to feel selfish that they were only conversations that I got to have. I think if there's anything that has resonated deeply with me about this current iteration of technology and markets it's that at the end of the day our identity what our deep driving desires call us to do that's where magical things happen and i, I give a lot of shits about my my work and and anyways you encouraging me to start capturing some of this is it's a it's a huge gift that that you and Ben, who will be on later, have given me.
1: Yeah, totally, man. So much of what you said is funny, you know, when you're saying about, well, first you asked me about fatherhood. I The minute I, I think I really realized that how important Acquired was in my life. And I think when I realized that someday this was going to be my main thing, a few years before it actually became my main thing, was I was just thinking one day, about the impact of what I did in my career and everything I did every day. And I was like, you know, if I were to die tomorrow, nobody would ever remember anything I did in my career except acquired. And like acquired would live on. <laughs> and that was like a huge moment. And it's so funny you do say that, you know, so many people like go through their careers and and they fall into that first bucket of like, they're not going to be remembered for anything that happened in their careers or it's not going to have elastic impact and podcasting and sharing what you do with the internet, the world, even if it's just you know going to resonate with a niche community, it's just such a beautiful thing. So I'm so glad you're doing it.
0: I appreciate it very much. And I, I had a similar experience thinking about the e- ephemerality of of life. I was, I was on a jog. And I think I've shared this story with you, but I was on a jog. I thought, what would happen if I got hit by a bus? And you kind of go through your mind about how your family would be taken care of. And I, it occurred to me that my family, at least from like a financial perspective, they would be taken care of by the collection of of partners that, that we've brought into our lives. Like they would be taken care of by you. They would be taken care of by many other people that we've gone into business with. And the depth of what that meant to me, it was, you know, there's this notion of it takes a village. Like I felt the village around me and having that experience is powerful, but Again, just kind of recognizing that I'm just I'm just one little ant here. You want to find something that's good. And then Willy Wonka and the chocolate factory, like you want to throw that golden ticket up and be like, I got a golden ticket. And then you and then you want to run the printer and share it with everybody. So hopefully the pod can can do some of that.
1: Oh man. Let's do it. Well, so as of recording right now, my daughter turned six months old yesterday. Gosh, which is so hard to believe. You know, it's so many things. I was just reflecting on this the other day that like everybody says it's so cliche that like you can't prepare for, <laughs> you have no idea what it's going to be like. And I'm just like, wow, that's so true. <laughs> Becoming a parent was something I wanted for a long time. I've talked about this, I think a little bit on Acquired, but it was not an easy journey for for Jenny and I. My wife, we went through, gosh, it was three and a half years of fertility issues broadly defined. In our case, it was genetic related. We found out, thank God we did as part of the process of starting to think about trying to get pregnant, that we both have genetic uh, mutations that are predispositions to cancer. I've known about mine for a long long time. I have something called Lynch syndrome, which in men predisposes you to colon cancers primarily. Jenny has uh, has BRCA, which is a predisposition to many cancers including including most often breast cancer. So that set us on this crazy, you know, journey with UCSF here in San Francisco, which is just such an amazing medical research institution to do IVF with genetic testing on on our embryos to make sure that our kids wouldn't have either of these mutations? Um, so we were able to do that. Like I said, that took three and a half years. <laughs> and so by the time our daughter arrived, you know, I I think my my wife would say too, we were we were so ready. We were beyond ready. <laughs> Such a treat. I quite literally
0: spend you know multiple hours a month. I don't know about a week, but I I, I clean up a I clean up a lot of shit. And so when your world is cleaning up literal or figurative shit. And when you're doing that in partnership with another person, if you want that partnership to be something that you enjoy doing, which is another way of saying like, if you want to enjoy your life, you have to make the drudgery enjoyable. I mean, I think where I want to take this eventually is the partnership that you and and Ben have and what has come from it. I mean, it's not kids, but it's pretty damn cool, man.
1: We think about our episodes as our kids. <laughs> and it shows I think for our partnership which you know really the whole thing was so accidental but we grew into it. We always assume the best in one another. We are both I think extremely positive optimistically oriented people and so I think and I think that comes through in in what we the work that we produce. Like there's never a you know, every now and then we'll we'll cover kind of a negative story or a failure and people ask us all the time, but it's just not something that like we're inclined towards. We're inclined towards like being optimists and like if you can find that with somebody and share that and produce that work together, it's just great. And then the long term cycles of doing that and trust over now seven years, it's, it's just like kind of in the water for us. <laughs> I don't know. There's kind of a rambly answer.
0: No, it's really helpful. I mean, it's, there's something about like the line of never trust a thin chef, never trust a, a sober bartender. I don't think you can really trust a pessimistic venture investor because if you're, if you're in the business of what can go right, and if you're going to resonate, like really feel in your bones the mission of a founder, the building of a, of a technology, the evolution of a market that ends up being way bigger than any of us thought, I feel like I feel like the seconds and minutes of your day they have to be f- like filled with optimism and hope and wonder. And you know what? I would say even if they don't, even if it results in mediocre outcomes where where the optimism you know gets punished at the end of the day, like y- you have one life, and do I want to live a pessimistic life? That, no, like that just doesn't that doesn't sound like a respectful way to to receive the time that you're that you're given. And so I think the fact that you and Ben have built a very successful business around a kernel of friendship and optimism is something that, that for me has just has been really inspirational. And seeing now that, that my goodness, you guys are doing a friggin' arena show. Maybe I, we'll land there to talk about kind of what Acquired is, how you guys think about what's gotten you here and where you'd like to go next what it means for you guys to host a show like this, to throw up effectively a party with thousands of people that have identified into your tribe. I just think it's the coolest thing.
1: It is the coolest thing. It's so crazy. We Ben and I have literally been joking about this. We are planning the acquired wedding. Like that is what is <laughs> happening here. <laughs> yeah, we're planning this event and and you know we're realizing as part of it, we, we do this, but it's a very... Specific tangible event and reminder that we have close to, well, now above a quarter million people that listen to the show, of which, you know, we have 10, 12,000 people that are active participants in our community in the Slack. And then we have our community of people that we've interacted directly with as part of the show over the years, like all the guests that we've had, all of our sponsors, folks like you, people who've started other podcasts around around this whole thing, and just inviting all these people and interacting with them and hearing the joy that they have for, (laughs) you know, like you were saying, like, everybody's reaction is like, Oh, my God, I can't believe you're doing this freaking arena show. This is so cool. We're so happy that this is happening for Acquired. It's been crazy.
0: I feel like once you have an arena show defining your business or your profession as like I'm a podcaster, like that doesn't really feel like it captures the essence <laughs> of what it is that you guys do, what, what you've built to date. Could you talk to me? I mean, I, I'd love to go into Acquired as a business. When I look at your 12,000 Slack members, and I know like how much of my investment pipeline has come through that community. When I look at at some of the the questions that I've that I've asked, if it's about getting help with a, a nonprofit that's that's looking to receive crypto and stock donations, like I just I don't just get a recommendation; I get an introduction to the founder of the best company doing this. When I had a a medical device company that I was working with, and I asked the community for some thoughts on on who I might want to introduce it to. I got somebody from Lux Capital reach out to me and, and ask for information. So this oh, is more than... I didn't a, even
1: know that. That's awesome.
0: Yeah, I don't think I had shared that with you. It was so cool. It's more than a company, but it is a company. So I'd just love to kind of talk a little bit about what Acquired is to you. We can chat about, we can maybe run it through some, some Hamilton Hel- Helmer. Oh, that'd be fun. Seven powers we can chat I, I think we both have a, an exceptional fondness for counter positioning I think actually optimism is one of the ways that you guys are and lack of of ego and just earnest curiosity and joy at, at seeing other people build but I'd just love to hear you jam for a few minutes about about what acquired is yes yeah. if, if that's not a, a bad question
1: no I think it's a great it's a great thing to talk about if the question is what acquired is, I think that is actually different to different people. There's what acquired is to you that you just so eloquently said, which is <laughs> amazing to hear. And I think there are a lot of people who would have a, who have a similar relationship to it. You know, then there's people who are casual listeners. Then there's people who are you know even deeper in the community and the like. I don't know that I can particularly speak for any of them. You'd have to ask them themselves. I think if what i can speak to is the question of what acquired is for me on that front it's and i say this the, the reason i prefaced it with all the other people's relationship to it is i don't want to i don't want to say that what acquired is to me is what it is to everyone else it has become its own thing but to me acquired is unique stew of everything that ben and i love <laughs> and Love, respect, study, want to be. And in that, people who are fans of Acquired will know we cover Berkshire Hathaway, we cover Standard Oil, we cover Nvidia, we cover <laughs> Altimeter, we cover Sequoia, we cover, you know, FTX. The unifying thread is it's all business in some sense, and it's all great stories. There is a wide gulf between. Standard Oil and FTX out there, or Solana. When I think of what Acquired is, it really is the combination of those things. Like as a business, it is two-person LLC of me and Ben. And we have a few other people that are part of the team now, but there are no full-time employees. It is not a corporation. It has zero dollars of investment or funding. You know, it really is... In terms of structure, it's like the Buffett grocery store back in Omaha that Warren and Charlie you know worked in growing up. It's a you know small business on the internet, but amazing thing there is both parts of that statement. It is a small business on the internet, <laughs> and by virtue of being on the internet, we also look a lot like Twitter or Facebook or Reddit or what have you, you know obviously not in the Nature and tone of our communities, but we are a scaled (laughs) community out there. And the business has scaled beyond our wildest imaginations. The number of people who listen, who participate in the community, has scaled beyond our wildest imaginations. You know, if we were a corner store in a city, you know, in Omaha, in the physical world, well, there are not a quarter million people in Omaha who would be (laughs) shopping at our store, let alone like deeply engaging with us. It's kind of this. This hybrid of those, and then it's also, you know sort of the third piece for me and and I think Ben too, of what we love, aspire, study to have done in our careers is investing and and being part of venture firms and partnerships. You know, again, this is not a company. There are no employees. nobody reports to anyone in structure, it looks a lot like a venture firm and a venture partnership. We love that about that, and in fact, <laughs> we also get to make investments as a result of as an output of what we do. I think that's my answer is like, it is a combination of a Berkshire Hathaway Hathaway style business, of an internet style business, and of a investment partnership. One of
0: the things that we've both talked about, one of the concepts is just this notion as, as we think about risk and opportunity, it's never trade something that you need for something that you want.
1: You should say that again. This is, I think, among many profound Thomas statements, this is the most profound Thomas statement that has a has had a big impact on how I think about things. So say it again, hammer it home.
0: Yeah. This has been really influenced by 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 people like Ben Thompson or Luke Burgess, but just this notion of we all ought to have a priority stack. And we all ought to respect what being at the top of that priority stack means, being second, third. And I think if you can clearly structure what's important to you and then communicate that to others, you set yourself on a path to having a clear sense of who you are. You set yourself on a path to establishing like rightly considered relationships because people See you for who you are. They know that your yes means yes and your no means no. And if you can kind of continue that waterfall into daily decisions that you make, if it's about investing, if it's about health, if it's about how you spend your time, and just ask yourself, Am I violating the order of my priority stack by saying, Am I trading something that I need for something that I want? I have needed that question. An answer in kind of internal dialogue to maintain clarity, calmness, and confidence in situations where the world just throws all sorts of shit at you. And so, it's been really important to me the fact that 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 it has found resonance with you, and that you, we've had opportunities to share life experiences where we're we're applying that priority stack mindset. We're asking ourselves what 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 trades that we we're, we're making most often in a non-financial sense. I think it's it's really helped me figure things out that, that at first glance seem really complicated.
1: Really helpful in the current age and environment that we live in, that you and I participate in. And I imagine probably most people who are going to listen to this podcast participate in, which is the internet and this age of incredible abundance that comes with it, which to be clear is an incredible, amazing thing. But it also creates this infinite array of possibilities of options of things you could do of opportunities. And so being able to select among them of, you know, which you are going to do or what changes you are going to make, how you're going to evolve and adapt. You know, I find that question of, are you trading something, making sure that you're not trading something that you need for something you want. It's just a really great framework.
0: Yeah, I'd say one of my biggest frustrations in in investing conversation is how often Buffett-isms or or other kind of influential, influential investors, like how often their words get strictly limited to conversations about money. I mean, I think one of Warren Buffett's lines about about being a parent is he wanted to give his kids enough to do something, but not enough to do nothing. And in an internet world, we have enough to do nothing. And I think that's kind of what part of the calling for doing this podcast is about. Seeing my own struggles and recognizing like, shit, I do spend a decent amount of time doing nothing. I try to move beyond that. And I just want to have some more, some conversations that reflect on on some of the, the anchors, the focal points that people build, and I, I think that that really is a conversation about relationships, and it is an exploration of partnership. When we first started talking about this this podcast idea, I was sharing with you like a very split mind, where on one hand, I've just been so overjoyed by the spectrum of conversations that I've been able to have in my role as an allocator for a family office. The people that are building companies, the people that are are investing into those entrepreneurs, and really learning about the capital formation life cycle. And I really do think of it as a life cycle and in much the way, same way that you can revere end of life, even in bankruptcy there are joys and learnings to be found. And so I have wanted to figure out ways of identifying that that optimism and that persistent like will to be default alive and carry that through the capital stack. And some of the challenges that I've experienced relate to my peers as limited partners, where I see the enthusiasm the full giving of oneself in a lot of my interactions, but it is not consistent necessarily throughout the capital stack. And I, I think that there are a whole host of reasons for that. Namely, there's a big chunk of, of the decision-making structure where people are agents of capital, not principles of capital. And if you're an agent of capital, your risk-reward is likely to be focused on self-preservation. And Depending on how you've self-selected into your role or the organization, the assets that you look at, I have experienced just what I would consider like general malaise and a lack of of a will, a desire to win. I don't think that I'm alone in being an LP that wants to give my full self to the partners that we're we're building with. So growing that conversation is something that i that I think is really, interesting and i'd like to try and change some of the middle management dynamics that i think have encroached on on the way that that lps are generally viewed in the market and the ways that we we view ourselves one of my very best friends said to me a long time ago and i'll be totally honest i didn't understand what this meant and i'm still learning but his line was thomas you aren't who you think you are you aren't who i think you are you are who you think i think you are and I think that there are a lot of LPs, there are a lot of just a lot of us in general that define ourselves by the way that we think that the world views us. And limited partners have kind of failed to attract the same sort of attention and glorification that founders and venture capitalists have attracted. And so I thought that being, being a voice to explore that because it's my own personal journey would be kind of interesting. I do want to ask you because you've had a long career working with investors and and seeing the ways that that limited partners can play a role that's beyond the check that they write. Are there any such stories or experiences that you've had that that come to mind when thinking about LPs that just seem to to do it right?
1: Yeah, it's um, you know, sadly I do agree with what you were saying, you know, in the premise of the limited partner industry generally being, you know, <laughs> I I think I've had limited partners at well known renowned institutions, you know, say, yeah, this is not a very competitive industry. And so generally my experience has been along the lines of what, you know, you were saying. And I and I don't think that's a controversial statement. I think most <laughs> most GPs, LPs people in and who interact with the limited partner industry would probably agree with it. And I, you know, just want to underline also like that is a big reason why I wanted to encourage you to to do this. And I think that this podcast, this whatever it <laughs> becomes, starting as a podcast, is so differentiated and important, which is also to say I, I have a hard time <laughs> thinking of real tangible examples of limited partners who have done the types of things that you are talking about. I, I would say, I think the one big exception I would say to that as a limited partner, and there may be some others we can talk about too, but that I have both experienced and that I think in the current the current reality or envisioning of what an LP is, is putting firms in business. That is a very, very meaningful thing, power that LPs have. and gift that they can give to GPs or or anybody that they're investing in to do something. You know, allocating that first capital to fund one of a new venture firm to get started or what have you, you know, XYZ project or to you know, sponsor do a, a fundless sponsor. We have we have a mutual friend who's who's doing this right now, buyouts of of a business with a without a fund to be a fundless sponsor and then with goals of building that up into something bigger over time. Those are hard decisions to make. And taking that risk and putting somebody in business, you know, I think any GP who has started a firm and raised a first fund will tell you that the people that do that, the people who anchor those funds, who really step up and say, I'm going to give you enough capital for this to be viable. And I'm going to set you by doing so and me doing so, I'm going to enable you to then raise the rest of it (laughs) from other people. That is such a huge moment. And so I've, I've been lucky to be, you know, part of firms in the past where that lore has been passed down to me, you know, at Madrona, at Meritech, and the LPs that were their first LPs, like the loyalty that those firms have to those people is immense. And and then lucky to have experienced it myself now multiple times. That is huge. But (laughs) that's a one-time event in the lifetime of a fund. I think it's what you already are doing as an LP and what you want to do and want to evangelize with this show of, hey, let's go a lot beyond that is, would be very welcome in the industry. Hey, everybody. We're going to take a quick break to hear from my good friend, Courtney
0: Hope, founder of My Marketplace Builder, a software as a service platform powering many of the next generation marketplace ideas. Let's talk about My Marketplace Builder. Courtney, what is My Marketplace Builder?
2: So My Marketplace Builder is SaaS software for making marketplaces. With our software, you can get any kind of marketplace idea, whether it's product, service, or rental. Get on the site, sign up for a free trial, and start taking transactions as quickly as the next day. The other uh, part of the marketplace that we do is we also do customizations. So anything from first-time entrepreneurs all the way to Fortune 100 companies, we can go through and we can customize any pieces that you want from our featured library that has hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of different kinds of features to choose from too.
0: That's awesome. One of my favorite parts about working with you and, and researching your business is when I get to listen to your customer conversations. Can you talk about some of the customers that you guys work with?
2: Yeah, and that's something that's really exciting to us, the different kinds of marketplace ideas that people come up with. It, it, it really is the future of the world right now. Exactly how Shopify did it with the e-commerce world, where. People needed to go through and sell their stuff online. We're doing that with the marketplace spots. We have anything from crawfish sourcing uh, for restaurants all the way up to 18-wheeler parts to working with companies like Goodwill. And there's no limits to how you want to grow your marketplace and how do you want to do it or what your marketplace idea is.
0: So the website is mymarketplacebuilder.com. If you have a marketplace idea, then please go check them out. Thanks so much, Courtney. We'll look forward to hearing more from you later this season.
2: Yeah, I can't wait, Thomas. Thank you.
0: I was speaking with the the chief investment officer of a food logistics company in North Africa, which given the Russian-Ukraine situation is, is an absolutely fascinating conversation to be having. So he's the chief investment officer. And I asked him, what's your biggest challenge right now? He said, it's talent. And specifically, it's finding the Venn diagram between loyalty and capability and growing that middle ground. And I think Loyalty and capability are very finite, valuable assets that are way off balance sheet. But man, they find their way of making it on balance sheet in, in a fairly short period of time. The introductions that he's that he's made, the conversations, the education that he's provided to me, putting someone in business and helping them grow that loyalty and capability—it pays all sorts of dividends, and so. I'm sure that I will find myself in situations where I went over my skis and in, in reaching on those opportunities. I think what venture teaches us is that being in the what can go right business is fundamentally about about investing in people and finding somebody where you can you know help them make that zero to one jump. Put a, you just put a member on your
1: roster. Well, that's what's that's what I think is unique and different about the LP. GP relationship versus a VC to a, a company founder. If you're starting a fund, you know, a firm and raising a fund, it's binary. You cannot do anything without capital. Like the day before you have enough capital to be viable versus the day after you have enough capital to be viable is a like literally a 100% change <laughs> in your reality. Whereas if you're starting a company, these days, especially, you know, in the internet with software companies, you don't really need capital. Like there are a whole bunch of reasons to raise capital, et cetera. And obviously that's the reason the whole industry exists. But like you can go build something, you can go get customers, you know, you can bootstrap like capital is a ingredient of building the company. But if you're an investment firm, it's the whole dish, you know, <laughs> it's the whole meal, it's all the courses. And I think that's why it's such a special moment.
0: Yeah, it is something that there's a bond that you form, and I look forward to, to to bringing bringing out some of those those conversations. One of the questions that I wanted wanted to ask you it does kind of relate to the time that you've spent studying businesses, which is really studying people. I think one of my favorite lines on a on a public conference call was when Matthew Prince, the CEO of Cloudflare, he actually this was so cool, David. He referenced the conversation that he and I had had a few months earlier, where it was really neat. I was asking him, you guys talk about you know, how hard it is to get hired on at Cloudflare. Can we really talk about what talent, like what people, like what bringing on missionaries versus mercenaries is really about? And it was an awesome conversation that I won't forget. In this conference call, talked about, paid homage to the conversation, which again, was just the coolest damn thing. And he said, you know, what were what we're all about is, is recognizing that companies are just people. And so as you've studied some of the best companies with the most interesting stories, and you realize that alone you can go fast, together you go far, are there any partnerships, are there any relationships that come to mind as just being really, really outliers? You tell a lot of interesting stories, and so I am asking you to kind of pick your favorite child. Is there any partnership? That you had a special fondness for?
1: Ooh, in terms of specific partnership between people. Yeah. So I think one of the best lines in acquired history was our interview with Doug Leone a couple of years ago when we were talking about him, you know, after, shortly after Don Valentine had sort of passed the torch of leadership of Sequoia to, to Mike Moritz and, and to Doug. Was you know with the the nineteen ninety nine two 2000, 2001, the nineteen ninety nine fund and then the tech crash thereafter and what they did in response to the tech crash about that nineteen ninety nine fund which they cut their management fees I think they took the management fees down to zero if I have that correct and they committed like we are not going to lose money in this fund for you know for our limited partners that was a <laughs> that was a non obvious and tough decision to make at the time. We talked about it on the episode, you know, plenty of other firms took a different approach and Sequoia absolutely could have, which is just like, all right, this was bad timing on this one. This was a dud. We'll, we'll get it on the next one and make it up to you. But that ethos of like, we are not going to lose money in, on uh, this fund. And as Doug talked about, the partnership between him and Mike in running that firm at the time, and it's really unique that there was, you know, a two-person partnership running a firm like Sequoia, usually it's, you know, one person and Doug will be the first to say, you know, I think the way he phrases it is Mike was was one and, and he, Doug, was one A. Mike was the CEO and Doug was the COO, but it was a partnership running that when they were doing it together. And the line about that time that Doug used about why they made that decision and why it was the right thing to do to make sure that they were going to come hell or high water return money in that fund was you could burn cigarettes on our arms and we wouldn't flinch. (laughs) Uh, That it was just the right thing to do. It was the Sequoia ethos. It was the culture that they had that they wanted to build. And it was anathema that they would take a mulligan on that one. Just like the way he phrased it in his Doug Leotio way. Like that was such a moment. And I think what's cool about that as a partnership is he also alluded to on the episode and has said plenty of other places like it wasn't like, you know, I don't think Mike and Doug's partnership was like mine and Ben's. You know, Ben and I are great friends. I honestly don't know that we've ever had an argument. Like we're we're so aligned. Like we're just very, it is the most wonderful, beautiful thing. I think Mike and Doug fought like cats and dogs and had very, very different perspectives on things. And I think there was a lot of tension there. But like on that thing that like this is like the core, this is something that is like literally defines the soul of this of this firm, that they were both so aligned that like, yeah, you could have burned cigarettes on their arms and they wouldn't flinch. Like, ah, oh, so great. <laughs> so that's one example.
0: I love that. I mean, I think what what's really cool to me about that is kind of goes back to the priority stack where they had something that was very deep within them that they that they shared that they believed in, that they would burn cigarettes on their arms in a show of solidarity. And when you have that like very low level commitment that you have in yourself and that you see in your partner and you respect that you know that it's there. You can fight like, like cats and dogs. You can throw shit and let things get sometimes a little bit messy in the, in the pursuit of, of advancing the ball be, because you have that real foundational. I know who you are. You know who I am. And let's f- fucking do this together.
1: Yep. So cool. So I think that's that's the one that stands out to me on human side of things. On the company side of things, the one that stands out to me the most is Nvidia and TSMC. What amazing stories of each of those companies separately and then together, right? Like they, you know, and for folks who, who don't know or haven't listened to our episodes or just aren't as deep in the history of those two companies in the semiconductor world. They are so deeply intertwined, and they are both now certainly in the top ten most valuable companies in the world. I think, gosh, last I checked, Nvidia was like number eight, and TSMC was like six, maybe or five, or something like that. But the depth of that partnership. So TSMC is a silicon foundry; they manufacture chips for quote unquote fabless chip design companies. So you know, back in the old days, it was. You know, there was Intel and there was AMD and they were full stack chip companies. They designed the chips. They had the factories that fabricated them, that produced them. You know, they sold them, they made the end products, all that. It was all full stack. And then when TSMC came along and they said, we're going to do just the production part of this, just the foundry, just the manufacturing. And we're going to enable our customers. We're going to create this new class of thing of customers that can design and market the chips without having to actually make them. They were like, you know, like AWS or something, you know, like uh, with regards to software. And NVIDIA, (laughs) there's a lot more to this history that we talk about on the episodes. At first, they didn't work together, but anyway, then NVIDIA became, once NVIDIA really found its footing, one of their first major customers, and they were both tiny companies at the time. And just like the way they've grown together to doing billions, billions, so many billions of dollars of, you know, revenue together, over the years in partnerships, uh, in partnership and building. Certainly, NVIDIA could not have become what it is today without TSMC. I think maybe it's a notch or two less of degree on the TSMC side that would they be what TSMC today is without NVIDIA? No, they wouldn't be what they are today. It's not as existential, but it's still like so important. And like, that, that partnership is amazing.
0: Yeah, I think that trust is is one of if not the foundations of a functioning society and and certainly a functioning economy. So when we think about that meta concept specifically playing out as those two companies who are independently like fighting a very tough battle, like it is not a foregone conclusion at all that either one of these companies would be successful, figuring out how to calibrate Prisoner's dilemma, like where do you compete? Where do you cooperate? And having having partnerships that do serve the mutual
1: benefit of each company. Well, and the outcome of it too for the world, like they that partnership together has dethroned Intel. Not that Intel's totally irrelevant these days, but it's, it's a hell of a lot less relevant than it used to be when it was everything. And it has pushed not only enabled the continuation of Moore's law, but accelerated Moore's law. Moore's Law is Gordon Moore, Intel founder, right? Like (laughs) what the TSMC, SMC and NVIDIA partnership has enabled is an explosion of computing power and thus the internet and technology and software on a timeline and scale that would not have happened otherwise for the world. That's so cool.
0: One of the other things I wanted to to spend a minute talking about is you have another partner that we haven't talked about. Yes. I'd love to hear the backstory on on you and Nat and going into talking about kindergarten. And then I was going to kind of ask, you know, ways that as you're building your pipeline, building out the kind of companies that you're seeing, maybe even a Web3 reference here, I'll put a pin in this. And if you want to talk about Nat, and then I'll come, come back to some of these other questions.
1: Yeah, Nat and kindergarten. Well, <laughs> it's funny thinking about partnerships. Whether by coincidence or because there's some causality here, the best partnerships in my life have all been ones that grew and evolved organically and on a relatively, if, if you were looking at it in context, slow timeline. So certainly <laughs> me and Jenny being the, the first of those, you know, we, uh, we met in college I was a junior, Jenny was a freshman, I was two years ahead of her. We were in the same uh, student dance company together, <laughs> which sounds silly and quaint at the time. It was like our whole world to us back then. It was so fun. And so we, you know, quote unquote, worked together. We we were members of that together and we all took it. Like this was something that we, everybody who was in it took it very seriously.
0: David, there's no way that I'm I'm just gonna let a reference. <laughs> let that go. <laughs> yeah, dude. So you were in a dance company? Tell me about that.
1: That is correct.
0: There's so much that... The world doesn't know. I mean, so being being in a dance company, tell me how, how did you get into dance?
1: To meet girls. <laughs> so what it was, you know, people who are familiar with certainly this is a big thing in Ivy League schools and, and I think a lot of other schools around the around the country, a lot of other colleges. Like they're like a cappella groups, like a cappella is kind of like a like a thing that might help explain this at Princeton at least. And I think this is true at some other schools too. But at least at Princeton, I would say the student Dance companies are like on the same kind of tier as as the a cappella groups. Like if you are there were, gosh, when we were there, three big ones and sort of like five or six in total dance companies, just similar to like the, the a cappella group dispersion. And like if you were in one of them, like that was kind of like your defining thing on campus. And the way these companies worked, <laughs> all three of the big ones, were the girls who, at least at the time, who were in these companies were generally girls who had been training in dance their whole lives the guys were washed up athletes mostly i well a small portion of the guys were also dancers <laughs> but most of them were washed up athletes who wanted to hang out with those girls and that was that was me <laughs> so did
0: you guys end up performing i mean did, was that something that oh yeah yeah
1: so yeah it was a big just so twice a twice a year once each semester we would put on the big show and it was it was so cool it was all run by by us it was like our thing like the the company and we had officers of the company but we all did it we choreographed everything ourselves we you know we rehearsed three or four times a week for 3 hours each and then the shows then the shows would be huge they'd be in the biggest theaters on campus and like the whole campus would come and there would be this big party type atmosphere it was really fun and then the after parties were <laughs> those were really great
0: <laughs> oh man like what a perfect just like representation of of what college is supposed to unlock, I find myself getting a little bit negative on most university experiences, but man, that like intersection of relationship building and like a creative pursuit and the realities of of pulling off an event that requires lots of organization that sounds and it produced a a wedding and a child out of it, like
1: <laughs> yeah, it totally makes sense, so. Anyway, a long way of saying getting to Nat, I had been making angel investments after leaving sort of institutional venture capital and going full time on acquired. One of the companies I angel invested in was Nat's company Kettle. I had known Nat; <laughs> we went to kindergarten together, hence the name Kindergarten Ventures. But we'd lost touch, you know, after we went to different middle schools after elementary school. You know, one day when he was was starting Kettle, he DM'd me in the acquired Slack and was like, "Hey, I don't know if you remember me, but..." I've been listening to Acquired as I'm getting ready to start this company. And, you know, we went to kindergarten together. I'd love to. And I was like, dude, Nat, amazing. And so we went for a hike in, in the Berkeley Hills and uh, sort of rekindled our friendship. I was, you know, an early angel investor in Kettle that obviously Nat's, Nat and his, his co founders there are building something amazing. And so then, about, gosh, maybe a year after that, Nat came to me and said, been, a, You're doing this angel investing. I'm thinking about starting to angel invest myself. I get to see a lot of deal flow as a you know founder from lots of different sources, but mostly and especially from my VCs on my board who introduce me to founders that they want to win the deal and they you know want me to to sell the founders for them about how great they are to work with. And I'm like, you know, that's great, but I'd love to put some money in alongside this. You know, how do you think about angel investing? And so we started talking about that and this whole concept of angel funds, operator funds, solo capital, creator capital, whatever you want to call it, was just starting to happen. You know, you had the Allad Gills and the Locky Grooms and the like who started this way and have now built, you know, big institutional venture firms. But AngelList had really matured as a platform. And it was now impossible to raise small funds and not have the level of ambition that you used to have to have that I used to, you know, had when I went and raised a, you know, a fund of like, this is going to be a big institutional thing. This is going to be our full-time jobs. We're going to take over the world. We're going to be the next Benchmark Sequoia, etc. So we decided to do it together. And just as like, you know, same thing back to the college dance company, back to the beginnings of Acquired. We think this makes sense. This is something we want to do. We want to do it together. We want to have fun doing it. And let's see where it goes. So that was, that was the origin of, of kindergarten now, you know, 18 months ago.
0: That's just so cool. And I, I think that what what I've drawn from your building of Acquired and learning more about, about kindergarten, getting, getting to know Nat, is I think you found really interesting ways of doing what's play for you and work for others. That's why this works. I think that's why you have the energy to take all of this on. kind of want to draw a little bit on your experience as a creator. I can't imagine that what your career has become would have been something that you would have predicted good gosh, even even five years ago, which what's exciting about that, what ought to be exciting is roll this forward another five or 10 or 15 years. And that's, I think, what the essence of a lot of this comes back to is seeing where you've come and then knowing that you, you're you at the beginning. Can you talk a little bit about like ways that you've, I don't know if like the acquired Slack has given you insight into this or your time with kindergarten, but... This notion of doing what's what's play for you and work for others, you know, as we think about the future of work and you know, as I even kinda ask myself, like, what exactly am I doing with this podcast? It's like, I don't know. I just want to press record when I talk to these really kind, smart people and I'll figure it out after the fact. I'd just love to hear you kind of jam on your experience, what you've seen, and what the future of work actually means to you.
1: Yeah, man. (laughs) It's wild times we live in. <laughs> well, okay, so I have a few things to say on this. You know, I'll start at the beginning and then we can go forward. For me personally, this is my current, you know, life and career, quote unquote, whatever it is I do every day, is awesome and optimal and like, I love it. I This is, while I never, never, as you say, envisioned the specifics of what this would be, this was always the dream of what I wanted life and career to feel like. And that goes back to my parents. And when I was growing up, you know, in their own way, in their own time, and in their industry, they, they kind of did something similar. They were lawyers, attorneys, um, still are. Uh, and they worked for big law firms uh, in Philadelphia when I was first born. And then when I was about two, they left. They left their firms and they started their own firm in the little town in the suburbs that we lived in. And like they didn't even practice the same kind of law. They just did them, like as you know, just them. They took clients they wanted to take. They worked when they wanted to work. They came to my stuff when they wanted to come to my stuff. They were fully in control of everything. And then that evolved when I was in through middle school, really it was big when I was in middle school through various, you know, variety of life intersections. My career has been the result of. Random life intersections. They got the opportunity to first invest in and then help start some minor league baseball teams on the East Coast. My dad loves baseball, but they really did this both together. And so they did. And so then that became kind of like their, the second chapter of their entrepreneurial journey, you know, unexpected. And the baseball teams did really well. You know, that's kind of the environment I grew up in. So I was just like, well, this is awesome. Like, that's what I know. That's, that's what I want to get to. And the cool thing about the internet is like, you know, and the creator economy is that—that that is within reach for so many more people. Like it was nuts what my parents did back in the day, but like now anybody can do that. Yeah, which is just wild.
0: I didn't know that your family had a, a background in minor league baseball. One of the guys that I had a call with earlier this week that I'm really hoping will come on the podcast, but he's—he's he's very private. His family owned the Dodgers for several decades. Oh, No way. And, and talking to him about like what an honor and responsibility it meant to, to him and to his family to, to be a steward of that team. You know, he said, I didn't look at it as something that was front page news, celebrity. I viewed it as, you know, we were, I think his line was like, we were the, the local theater operator and we just wanted to put on the best show that we could. We wanted to serve the community. And so when, when you look at, I think the way that you guys are stewards of Acquired, and you share with me that your parents built minor league baseball teams,
1: there's some really cool... There's definitely a connection there.
0: <laughs> and man, when I have those conversations with people that are building those those businesses, committing themselves to it, like it just makes me so patriotic. And it's not even like a US thing, but it's just like, wow. So there are people that really give of themselves to that degree to just make an experience or a sense of identity in others, improving the lives of others through a great baseball game and knowing like what that fosters in a family. The people who can kind of operate at that at that metal level and actually like get into the specifics to successfully do it. Oh my gosh, it just makes me it makes me so excited when I get to be a fly on the wall for that.
1: Yes, all that is true. The other dimension of that is more obvious to me that when I think about uh back on this is Comfort and tolerance of, of risk or like perception of risk. I'm sure to so many of my parents' peers back in the day, both the leaving their big firms and starting their own like crazy firm in the suburbs of just them and, and then starting minor league baseball teams. Like <laughs> I can only imagine the conversations that their friends were having, you know, after having dinner with my parents, when they'd go back home be like, man, Ruth and Tony are nuts. <laughs> but it's just like because of that and because I saw it all Worked out. Yeah, there were like up years and down years. That's part of being, you know, an entrepreneur. But like in the long run, it all worked out and like it wasn't ever. So I just like doesn't feel risky to me. So like you're like, oh yeah, I think we can build this podcast into a thing. I'm gonna do that. Like that doesn't feel risky or crazy to me.
0: Yeah. I know that we're both like fans of of some of the work that Morgan Housel has done. And one of one of the examples in or the psychology of money, he talks about how there's a study that shows that you you really should lever your 401k like 2x and be all in and that that is the optimal return strategy. But of course, no one would do that. It's funny to me that no one takes has like what I think is the right takeaway from that situation where if you can mitigate your downside, you should embrace risk. You should go all in on this because the scenario where you you don't is that you're laying on the death your deathbed and it's like, oh shit. I didn't take the opportunities that were in front of me. And I think that we live in a world where, you know, this gets talked about a lot from a biology perspective, evolutionary perspective, we're wired to to live in a much harsher climate. We're wired to think that there is, is a lion in the bush, because if we assume that there's not, then the downside is that we get eaten. There aren't lions in the bushes anymore, like we've moved beyond that as a society, and the faster I think that we can kind of like catch up to to being a, appropriately risk on and doing things that are deeply motivational to us, even if they don't strike us as being like necessarily commercial or as something that everybody around you has resonance with. It just goes back to this concept that you and I talk about a lot, which is the internet is humanity's greatest invention. And if you can find a way of kind of presenting who you are and seek out people who want to share in that in that journey with you then my god like there are all hosts of ways of building building community and businesses you know i think that what challenges me what frustrates me a little bit is that i it's like this notion of like the future is here it's just not evenly distributed so i can listen to a podcast where somebody's talking about Crypto enabled societies and this kind of opt in structured contract world. But then, like, I go out into my regular life and I don't see the optimism. I don't see the enthusiasm. I don't see like the zest for life that is needed as an input to make those systems vibrant. And I think it's like it's simple shit. It's like how you treat the people that just come and go throughout your day. I'm not going to be the best investor. Like, I have resigned to that reality a long time ago, but I can maybe be like abnormally happy and encouraging and optimistic and trying to help people find what their thing is. And again, it's, I go back to acquired and the ways that you guys have done that for me, done that for many others. And, I can't say enough about about how appreciative that I am of this you encouraging me to take a step to try and do a couple of recordings and see what happens with it you letting me stand on your shoulders and build on the platform that you and Ben have put out there it's exciting for me and my true hope like the thing that I really give a shit about like my metric of success is that and it doesn't even mean that like My podcast doesn't have to be good. But if somebody sees that knucklehead Thomas tried something, well, (laughs) I can go and do that too. Yes, great. You're right about that. That's my hope.
1: Totally. Another thing that was just like a really impactful experience in my life, uh, you know, we talk about education and experiences in in school and college and was grad school, quote unquote, grad school, business school. Jenny, who did an actual PhD, is the first to point out that business school and academic grad school are... Two did very different things. But in business school, I, I went to Stanford for business school. We would have, you know, the classes were the classes, right? Like whatever <laughs> from my perspective. But like all day every day Silicon Valley was there and the actual people, the actual the partners at Sequoia and Andreessen and the like or uh, the CEOs of founders of these companies. Mark Zuckerberg like would come. <laughs> Jack Dorsey would come and time. You'd just you know, you'd watch them talk and then a lot of them You know, I'd say some large percentage of them would usually stay after and hang out and have lunch with whoever wanted to hang out with them. You just realize these people are just people. Like they're just people. There is nothing different from them and you. The different the only thing is they started doing something and they kept doing it. That's all there is. And that was just so empowering to be like, oh, they're not gods. They're not special. I can do this too. And so can anyone.
0: Yeah. We were talking the other day about I don't know if you, if you got to listen to it, but the uh, Lex Friedman interview with Rick Rubin, one of the things... Oh,
1: I haven't listened to it yet. I'm so excited. Uh,
0: man. This isn't a spoiler alert, but one of, one of Rick Rubin's lines is, there are no special people they're just special outcomes it's very true i think that there none of us are actually endowed with talents that that guarantee or anything close to guaranteeing an outcome there's this emily dickinson poem forever is composed of nows your forever is composed of your nows and so if you want to be somebody that's super fit then Go run. If you want to be somebody that is
1: really wealthy, then <laughs> well, yeah, do what do what Warren did. Like the playbook <laughs> is right there. Read the snowball and be like, oh, great. Start investing when you're young, have a long-term focus. Like, yeah, of course you can do that. Anyone can do that.
0: Yes. I think that what's important in my mind is that you find something that you could do every day for the rest of your life. It's only in that zone that I think that Real longevity, and again, like not to make this a, a Buffett fest, you and others have have talked about how what's amazing about Warren Buffett's career is is not the absolute return number; it's the longevity. And so, finding something that is authentic to who you are, and just hacking on it because that's who you are—that's kind of what you were born to do. That, to me, is where self-actualization exists. It's finding the thing that is uniquely you and just going all in. I'm going to see, I think I shared it with you, I'm going to see Dave Chappelle on Friday. And yes. I, I can't wait. I'm so excited. I've never been to a comedy show. My college years were the Chappelle show. I have so much respect for his intellect. But what I what I really love about him is his just willingness to go go all in and to show that he is fully committed to his craft. He does not hold back anything of himself in that pursuit. As I've been working with the family office that I'm the chief investment officer for, I've been thinking a lot about what makes really great outcomes. And so I've been reading books on Tom Brady or going back and learning more about the arc of of Elon Musk's career. And
1: what's occurred to me... He might be one person that actually is special. <laughs> Well, I think that's true, but for the other, for everyone else on the planet, <laughs> billion of us. I think what differentiates,
0: and this is going to sound hokey, but we, I think we all know it's true. It's not about what you get in life; it's about what you give. And whoever can give the most in one vertical is most likely going to win. That's where like actual competitive advantage exists. This Steve Prefontaine. There's a movie where he says, "Like the difference about me is that I can take more pain than anyone else. So finding the thing where you just love it because you're intrinsically motivated to go the extra mile because it doesn't feel like the extra mile, it just feels like who you are. I think that's what I've loved about Acquired and how you've shared your time at GSP and Jack Dorsey, Zuckerberg coming in and talking to you. It's not that they're necessarily complete savants with unparalleled access to resources that the rest of us don't have, it's that they found the thing that is uniquely them and they just went farther than anyone else. When you can walk and chew gum at the same time, when you can have a way of, and this is one thing I I look forward to talking with Luke Burgess, the author of a a book that I think is fantastic called, called Wanting. He talks about it as like positive flywheels, finding things where it's an area that you are deeply committed to, where you can show up, really embrace the the notion, like you look forward to the idea of there not being any off days because that's just like what your deep driving desire is. That's to me like where the really exceptional outcomes are produced. And so as I'm going on this walk about seeing people that have done amazing things and then humbly looking back at at my own self and thinking well gosh like how i achieve something that i would be proud of i've learned pretty quickly that it's not going to be based on my own individual efforts it's going to be due to the relationships that we can build the trust that we can facilitate that overlap of loyalty and capability and the partnerships where you can wrap arms with someone and say like i am in this with you. I think it's been really fun for me to hear feedback from from people like you that oh gosh Thomas there aren't any other LPs like you out there and after I heard that a couple of times I went beyond thinking that oh this is a nice compliment like I'm good at my job it instead was oh my goodness so you're telling me that the rest of my industry like isn't practicing their craft this way time out we need to have a conversation <laughs> about this like what are y'all doing this is this is really fun like don't let the joy of capital allocation. Don't let the blessing of resources go to waste. Receive that with vigor. Dance to show God that you're thankful for your life. And it doesn't mean or excuse anything of recklessness at all. But what it does, I think, require is, you know, just, yeah, just, I think it, it requires going all in, it requires making commitments and recognizing. That especially in an internet-defined age, any investment that you make, any partnership that you sign on the dotted line for, it is fundamentally about a relationship between you and another person and that person's relationship with their colleagues and their customers. And as soon as we can kind of find that plane for having productive conversation about what makes us the best version of ourselves. The quicker that we'll all do the matchmaking of what types of companies should we be investing in, what speaks to you. One of my best friends will ask me about an investment. He's a Boston thick accent. He's basically like a a real world Matt Damon from Good Will Hunting. (laughs) And he's like, Thomas, do you feel this in your bones? And I know what he's asking. And I know what it's like to feel something in my bones. I think that others do as well, but I think that we have ways of building protectors around us to not let ourselves, people always talk about not falling in love with investments, not making it be personal. No, fuck that. Only invest in things, in my opinion, where you think, I ask myself all the time, am I the best buyer of this asset? And if I can say that with a resounding yes, then I have confidence and clarity in the investment that examination process of like, do I believe in this founder? Do I believe in the product or service that they're rendering? Is this a business model that I can see performing well today and into the future? And then there's something that gets like just deeper where I just kind of look at myself in the mirror and say like, Thomas, is this something that you want to make part of your life story? And if the answer to that is yes, then great. Let's go. Let's be the barbarians at the gate. Let's go for it. man. I just, I feel like I have within I'm 36 years old to be 37 on mm-hmm. Sunday. Join the club. <laughs> uh, yeah. Thank you. Within my life, I have had this intragenerational experience of going from a childhood where the realities of my adulthood are very different than those of my childhood. My parents being divorced, being kind of on the outside of feeling like an outsider, I guess, is probably the simplest way that I can can put it. Like I was the poorest kid in my class. I was the fattest kid in my class. Like I am fundamentally kind of an
1: outsider. Both of which are surprising knowing you now.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Having and yeah, but that's it, man. It's kind of why this this concept of doing a podcast makes some sense to me. Because it is really uncomfortable. You're doing a good job at it. I appreciate that. I feel like My life, it's why I have four kids. I feel like my life would be wasted if it was just me and my little head dreaming up dreams. And my goal is to enable the family that I work with. My goal is to help them set their priority stack and then work really damn hard to accomplish their vision of what they want the legacy of their tremendous wealth creation to be. I feel like I get to be a missionary and many things, and a mercenary to none, and the autonomy that, and like the self-awareness that I think that that has facilitated over the last couple of years, it's just something that I would feel like I would be doing a horrible disservice if I didn't just try
1: to to share it. Likewise, on all of that for being my friend, encouraging me, and dude, I'm just so glad you're doing this. This is great, and I'm honored to be the first guest. So cool of what I'm sure will be an amazing. Dirty for you, no matter what shape it takes. So, <laughs>
0: <laughs> David, thank you so much. Hopefully we can cut this into something that's great. <laughs> we
1: will. All right, dude. All right. Thanks, man.
0: Well, that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. This has been an Unlimited Partners production. The show was edited and produced by Andrew Thomas, and our music was composed by Nick Samaska. Thanks again, and we'll see you guys next week. If you'd like to learn more about sponsoring Unlimited Partners, then please say hi. Email us at sponsor at up-pod.com.